Father, indeed, we come to this time and we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks and praise that your word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld its glory. We give you thanks and praise that your word is like a sword which proceeds from your mouth, that you will bring and bring truth and justice as the king of kings. And we ask now that we, our own lives might be surrendered to your reign, that we might rejoice, and that you would use this time, you would soften our hearts, that we would hear your word, and it would take root in our lives as we have need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Psalm 110, this is the word of God. A psalm of David, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments From the wombs of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will scatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The word of the Lord. Let me pray for the preaching of God's word. Father, as my words are true to your word, may they be taken to heart. But if my words should stray from yours, may they be quickly forgotten. I pray this in the power of Jesus Christ. Amen. I don't know about you, but time just is flying by. I literally feel like it was just yesterday when I was almost shocked and I, as I realized that we were already in November. And now here I'm standing at this pulpit and we will be celebrating Thanksgiving this week. And I don't know if you're aware of this, and I hope it doesn't shock you too much, but next Sunday when you sit in these pews, it will be the first Sunday of Advent. And because next Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent, that means this Sunday is the last Sunday of the liturgical church calendar year. There is, in some sense then, the the reality that this Sunday is the consummation of all that the year, at least in terms of the calendar, the church calendar points to. Therefore, it is fitting that on this Sunday, we celebrate Christ the King. Next week, at least in the liturgical church calendar, we will start all over again. We will be looking at our great need for a Savior, highlighting the expectation for and the hope in a coming Redeemer. Hopefully, we'll build that anticipation into a glorious proclamation of God with us in Emmanuel at Christmas, a celebration that the eternal word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And then moving through the year, we will glory in epiphany, 
in, in a light that God gives to us. We will lament at the sin in our own lives in Lent. We will grieve at the fact that our precious Savior, that spotless lamb, was tortured, bled, and died because of our sin. He was laid in a tomb. The sun was darkened. That Friday will move into a Saturday, and another sunrise will dawn on the disciples, scattered and confused. That would be their first day without a teacher, and it must have seemed so strange, a Sabbath spent for them in grief and confusion. And then the sun would set again. And when the sun set, it also set in motion the women who followed Jesus, a plan for a more proper anointing of their beloved teacher. And then at the break of dawn, it is discovered that death cannot hold the author of life. The power of death, its sting, its penalty is shattered even as the disciples' hopes and joys are restored. Jesus has risen from the dead. And the only explanation for that is one that Christ has been teaching all along. That he has none other than the Son of God. He is the anointed one. And he, the Christ, having defeated death, that original curse placed on the first Adam in his sin, this Jesus, the second and superior Adam, ascends into the heavens and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And throughout the year, we'll see in ordinary time the impact of Christ's reign, the transforming power and work of the Holy Spirit in our life, the the glory of the Father in the life of his church. But it all starts at Advent. And it all points to that day when Christ the King is a reality that the whole world will know and confess. The vision given to John that becomes known, the fullness of Christ the King, Christ the victor, as fully realized. On that day, on that great day, indeed, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That scripture you can find in both Philippians 2 and Romans 14, and they both quote Isaiah 45. And yet, Christ the King ought to be something more than just what we want the world to know generally. It ought to be something, a reality that we as Christians, we as followers of Christ, desire to know personally. That is a reality that we desire to be evidenced in all that we say and do, that Christ is our King. And looking at the topic of Christ the King, there are admittedly so many avenues to take. But this morning, I'd like to move from those broad strokes that I've already painted with to a more focused look at Christ the King as he's revealed in Psalm 110. As a passage, Psalm 110 has been noted by Old Testament scholar Perone as, as being more frequently cited in the New Testament than any other single portion of the ancient scriptures. You can find reference to it in, in uh, at least three of the Gospels. There are two sightings in Acts. First Corinthians cites it and at least five different sites in the book of Hebrews. As we look at Psalm 110, we'll notice that Christ 
is the king who rules in the midst of his enemies. And it's fitting for us to look here, for this is where we live as well. We live in the midst of God's enemies. And often we don't treat them, we don't view them as enemies of God. In fact, we want to see them as our friends. We live our lives so often desiring their affirmation, their words of comfort, their appreciation, their approval. And in fact, our current American culture sends almost the reverse message. The culture used to call for tolerance. That word is no longer in vogue. Now it's some sort of celebratory affirmation of everything that one and every, everyone and everything that you could possibly imagine except one thing. The one thing which our culture refuses to affirm is that absolute confidence, the assertion that Jesus Christ is in fact the King of Kings and that our lives ought to be conformed to his rule. Now, don't get me wrong. The scriptures never call us to be violent or combative with God's enemies around us. Our text will show us that is his business, and he has a day appointed for it. In fact, we're given counter commands that we are to love our enemies. We are to pray for our enemies, because really, they're not our enemies, they're God's enemies. In fact, the scripture's most aggressive commands are focused on the way we are to deal with the sin in our own lives. First and foremost, we are to be brutal with our sin. We are to rout it out, uh, root it out. We are to gouge it out, break it off. We are to resist, to stand firm, to flee. But with the sins of those who are blind to the thing of God, to them we are to be gracious and tender. Even when we must discipline as a church for the purity of the bride, we are to do so thoughtfully, carefully, and graciously. Psalm 110 speaks to that reality. Christ is reigning in the midst of his enemies. And and so it speaks to that tension of the now and not yet. The Messiah is the King of Kings, and yet enemies abound. The psalm looks to the time that death has already been defeated, and yet it is not ended. Psalm 10 110 is called the Psalm of David, and yet perhaps the superscription should read a Psalm of Christ. For David is only found in this Psalm in the tiny little word, my, in verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. There's a conversation that Jesus has. It's recorded in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke with the Pharisees and others in the temple. And Jesus quotes this psalm and a conversation ensues. And at the end of the conversation, after that very brief exchange, Matthew chapter 22, uh, verse 46 records this, that no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him, any more questions? What was the exchange that so shut down the critics of Christ? Now, Jesus had simply asked of the Christ, whose son is he? And when they responded, the son of David, 
Jesus then replied, How is it that David, in the Spirit, that is, speaking in the Spirit of the Lord, how is it that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. Robert Peterson, one of the seminary professors that both Lloyd and I had a chance to get to know a little bit in his work, Christ or Salvation Accomplished by the Son, notes that in Israel, everyone had two lords. They had their earthly king, which in that case would have been David, and their heavenly king, which would have been God. But what about David? Did he have two lords? It seems he did. And Peterson remarks that he looks ahead prophetically. And he declares that his promised son would also be his savior, his Lord, and his king. And this king would be seated. His work accomplished at the right hand of the father. We know that the right hand is a place of honor. And so think of it, a place of honor is held for the despised servant of Isaiah the simple son of Mary on Joseph, the betrayed teacher and friend of Judas, the scapegoat of the true Israel seated at the right hand of the Father. The Testament scholar Delix remarks that not only is the right hand the place of highest honor, but it also signifies the reception into the fellowship with the Father as regards his dignity and his dominion. All this is why Derek Kidner remarks, God exalted him as emphatically as man rejected him. And still man rejects him. Our Christ, the King of Kings, rules, seated at the right hand of the Father until that day in which God will place all of his enemies as a footstool under his feet. And our King enables us to worship to thrive, and to deepen our hope in true justice all in the midst of his enemies. And we are still blessed to be able to worship freely in our nation. That is a joy, and I hope it's one you do not take for granted. I hope you realize that is a freedom that hangs in the balance, one that many in our nation no longer regard as essential or necessary, and some even regard it as truly problematic. But whether you follow Christ here or in some of the nations where they are not allowed to worship publicly and freely, uh, places to which we support missionaries, whether you worship here or find yourself there, the followers of Christ still worship him. Christ, the king, is worshiped in the midst of our enemies. Lee Ellis, in his book, Leading with Honor, tells of his time in Vietnam. As Christmas was approaching, the Christian prisoners of war in Hanoi, in the Hanoi Hilton, asked their commanding officer, that senior-ranking prisoner, if they could hold a worship service. Now, he knew that this would likely result in the torture and the beating of all those who led the service, as well as a torture and a beating for himself as the senior-ranking prisoner, and yet he still agreed. And sure enough, as the men began to sing well-known Christmas hymns, 
and declare out loud from their prison cells to each other so all could hear scriptures that they had memorized. Several of the leaders were pulled out and in the hallway beaten and tortured. At one point, hearing the sounds of that torture, the the singing began to lull as the prisoners could hear that their commanding officer, their senior ranking prisoner himself, was being tortured. And he writes that when he heard the lull in the singing, he called out, Sing out louder, boys. Our Christ is King. I tell you, verse 3 shows a glorious picture of the followers of Christ offering themselves freely in worship. Now, admittedly, in David's later years, he had the joy of peace from the surrounding nations. But verse 3 pictures the joy and true desire for worship that will be found either in peace in Israel or captivity in Babylon, which the people would know, the cells of Hanoi, or right here, right here in the Flathead Valley. Because Christ is king, and because he reigns in the midst of his enemies, he rules even while enemies still seek and plot to destroy and devour. And yet grateful followers who have tasted real forgiveness, who've experienced that life-giving gift of the burden of their sin and shame released and lifted, they will always flock to worship Christ the King, even at cost to their own lives and livelihoods. Knowing this, knowing that we move in his power and that as verse 3 describes, we will also wear the garments of his righteousness. And that's a picture that Isaiah in chapter 59, where we read here first of the Messiah putting on righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation, garments of vengeance for clothing, wrapped in zeal as a cloak. It seems he's about to engage in that great day of wrath, which our text speaks about. But then two chapters later in chapter Isaiah 61, verse 10, we rejoice that this same Lord, quote, has clothed me with garments of salvation and covered me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest. And here in Psalm 110, we stand ready to worship in holy garments like a priest. That's what our text tells us. And Delic remarks that to, quote, stand before God is to serve him as a priest. Again, you know that the priestly function is to represent God to the people and the people to God. And here in our text, we note that the king, he's also described in verse 4 as a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You may remember that Melchizedek was that kingly priest. And so Christ, the great priest, is a kingly priest. And he's leading, if you will, an army of under-priests clothed in his garments of righteousness. And so it might be right for you to ask yourself, how do you function as a priest? What are the relationships that God has placed you in that you are able to represent to those people, God, to man? 
to show those people around you a picture of God, his love, his mercy, his faithfulness, his patience, his, his holiness, his care, his protection. When you think of your life as a representative of this God, do the people around you only see his law? Is your life characterized by only pointing out one's failures and failing to show God's provision for all of our failures? Representing God to man. Furthermore, how do you represent these people to God? Would you say your life is characterized by petitioning the king for their souls? Do you weep when you see brokenness and separation in people's lives? Do you plead with our Lord for their lives, asking that God might work through you or perhaps someone else, that he would reveal himself to them, that he would open their eyes to his glory and to his might? Do you plead on behalf of people? before the great priest. Christ is king, and he is ruling in the midst of our enemies. Verse 2 makes that plain. And yet in spite of those enemies, he enables us to worship. He enables us to serve as priests, and he enables us to thrive. This is a, a short point here, but hopefully you've heard the energy in the desire to, to worship and to serve. And Psalm 110 shows that even that is a gift from God. Notice how verse 3 ends. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Here the followers of Christ are likened to the dew. It's been noted that the dew, quoting one scholar, shows the numerous freshness like the dew on a mountain. Others have noted uh, the immense number of drops of dew. And you can see in this idea that the followers are full of vigorousness and multitude. It was really actually a curious phenomenon to read all these scholars describe dew with vigorous, numerous drops. But it's a picture of a freshness and refreshment. Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12, which were cited by several, they speak to the king of kings, but also described there as the branch, noting that he will branch out from his place and mentions that all will come from afar, exiles from a distant land to help build the temple of the Lord. Uh, An action requiring vigor. Here the king of kings is, is then called the Lord of hosts or the Lord of the armies, For they are full, numerous, and vigorous, and they are strengthened by the surety of God's reign. The confidence flows from verse 4, where we hear that the Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. It is an absolute thing. God has declared, and he will do it. He will not fail. He will accomplish all that he intends to bring about. And this should give us incredible comfort. When we read, for instance, uh, Paul in his letter to the Philippians, he writes this in chapter 1, verse 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in the day of Jesus Christ. Why Could he write so confidently? Because Paul knows that the Lord has sworn it and he will not change his mind. 
this confidence in the king who rules even in the midst of his enemies inspires worship and service. It grants the energy of youth in our efforts of, our, of service and worship. And lastly, it deepens a hope and an expectation and a longing for that final day when true justice and judgment will reign. Verse 5 and 6, they picture the day that is foreshadowed in verse 1, until I make your enemies a footstool. And here this is exactly what's happening. Uh, Look at verse 5 and 6. On that day, kings will be shattered. God's wrath will destroy defenses and arguments and defiance. Arrogant attitudes will melt before him, as well as unions and alliances set against them. And the result isn't pretty, at least not for those enemies. The judgment among the nation, re reads, will fill them with corpses. Heads of the people, chiefs of the people, will be scattered wide across the face of the earth. And on that day when God's wrath rolls, it will be accomplished quickly. That is the significance of verse 7. Delix remarks that, that, that the Lord will stand only long enough to refresh himself. He will drink by the brook, by the way. He writes then that he will again unceasingly pursue his work of victory to lift his head as the ultimate victor. This is a picture of Revelation where we see the king of kings riding with a conquering sword of the word of God from his mouth. His name is declared. It is written down his side and there is no enemy who can stand before him. All of his enemies are swept away into judgment. You need not fear them. You need to love And pray for them. And all that is left are those who have rejoiced to worship God as the King of Kings. All that is left are those who have longed to serve Him as a priest. All that are left are those who, experiencing joy, the vigor of youth, with a grateful heart, recognize that even their very life is a gift. From this King of Kings. This is where we are headed. Let us pray. Father, indeed, you are the King of Kings. And we are in great need of such a King. Father, it is so easy for us to be distracted by the challenges in our own lives, by challenges in relationships, struggles at work, by a sense of of impending doom, uh, perhaps in our country, perhaps in business, perhaps in something that we're working so hard to manage. Lord, free us from fear. Remind us again of your strength and your beauty. And Father, render us servants of you, the great King, that we would labor in love with your strength, with your vigor, with a willingness to worship and serve as priests, with a zeal that can only be described like the dew of youth. 
knowing that one day you will make all things right. We give you that praise. In Jesus' name, amen.